Welcome to the Energy Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, welcome to the Energy Council's Investor Series Podcast. I'm your host, Ben West, and today I am joined by Rusty Hudson and Eric Williams, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Financial Officer at Diversified Gas and Oil. Rusty and Eric sit at the other end of the table to the investors that we usually have on the podcast. They bring their perspectives from a company that has successfully managed to raise capital in recent years, when so many others have struggled. Throughout the episode, Rusty and Eric delve deeper into diversified gas and oil's promotion onto the main market of the London Stock Exchange last year, and they talk us through their journey to becoming the third largest producer on the London Stock Exchange behind Shell and BP. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Rusty. Hi, Eric. Thanks very much for doing this today. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Appreciate your time today. Appreciate it. No, absolutely. I'm I'm really excited to have you both on the podcast today. We usually have investors on the podcast to talk about the energy investment landscape, how that's evolving faster than ever before, how they are being increasingly selective about how and where they choose to deploy their capital and, and what they expect to see from energy companies if they're to commit their capital to them. Whereas you're able to provide the perspective from the other end of the table as a company that's successfully managed raise capital in recent years when so many others have struggled to. So I'm looking forward to talking to you a little bit more about that. But before we jump into the deep end, let's just start with a, a more lighthearted question. So I know you're considered key workers supplying essential energy to your local communities, but inevitably we've all been forced to spend a lot more time at home and with our families over the past year. I'm not sure forced is necessarily the right word, but you know what I mean. So I'd like to ask, is there a particular book or series that you've got into during the pandemic or, or that's helped you get through the pandemic? Would you recommend that our listeners go and check out? Rusty, maybe we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, obviously we were essential workers, so we spent more time in the office than probably most people did. Um, but my wife and I did catch up on a few uh, different uh, TV series on Netflix, uh, a couple of them being Suits. Uh, which we never had seen, you know, when it was running live. And then also um, my wife made me sit through multiple seasons of Gilmore Girls. Thank you, Lord. Um, but but so, yeah, we caught up on some series that and then I also read a, a great book uh, called The Great Game of Business, which uh, um, I enjoyed thoroughly. So, yeah, that was that was pretty much everything from from my perspective. Right. Well, uh, we'll have to we'll have to give Gilmore Girls a go. Um, Eric, how about yourself? Yeah, I know. Uh, so Rusty's got a touch into London with uh, suits, given Major Markle. But uh, you know, mine, interestingly, I, I got into the Great British Bake Off. So I was watching y'all's famous cooking show and enjoying that. But as Rusty said, you know, we never missed a day in the office. We were fortunate being essential workers and, and then just having a business that affords us the ability to social distance naturally. We're able to stay in the office and continue working. And we had a really busy front half of 2020. Uh, and I know we'll get into those details, but we completed the, the up list to the premium segment and completed acquisitions and financings. And so we were busy, but it was nice to, to have a little bit of time to enjoy that show. And then I had been reading a book that's called The Thoughts from the Diary of a Desperate Man by Walt Henriksen. It's a little bit of a heavier read. So that, that was my intellectual investment during the period. Brilliant. I'm sure it gives us plenty to explore in our own time. So, but let's jump in, into the deep end. I mean, you've alluded to some of the things you've been doing over the past year, but let's take it back to, to the beginnings. I'm sure you both need no introduction, but I like to start things off on a more personal note and with a bit of background uh, to set the scene for our listeners. So Rusty, let, let's start with you. Just give us an overview of where you grew up 
what did you study and where? Where did your interest in the energy industry originate? How did you get into the industry? Just take us through your journey up until founding DGO back in 2001. That's great. So I grew up in West Virginia, very small town there. Was the first one in my family to actually to attend college and university. Um, studied there in West Virginia at a uh, smaller school called Fairmont State University, where I now sit on the board of governors and studied accounting. Graduated and had spent 13 years in banking, pretty much in all kinds of accounting and finance jobs within two different banking companies. And then, you know, as fate would have it, you know, I grew up in West Virginia. My, I'm a fourth generation in the oil and gas industry. So when I graduated from the university, the last thing on earth that I wanted to do at the time was be in the oil and gas industry. That's why I spent 13 years in banking, but it drew me back. And so in 2001, my father, who was still working in the industry, still works for me today, by the way. I mean, he's 73 years old, still hits it just as hard as anybody out there every day in managing our Northwest Virginia area. But he brought me a package of wells. And while I was still working in banking and I took out a home equity loan to buy it, my wife was very upset with me at the time. But uh, that's really how you know we started the company. And it's interesting because in August of this year, we will have 20 years of uh, operations. It dates back to August 2001. So it'll be our 20th year anniversary as a company. So it's a big year for us, for sure. Thank you. And I was going to ask if there's anyone in particular who has been influential in, in your journey and motivating you to found the company and taking you through that journey. But I guess it sounds like being a fourth generation of the gas industry in your family and the role your father had played, it sounds like he was perhaps one of the more influential figures. I don't know if you can just talk to that a little bit. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, he was, you know, not only just a great father and a great role model over the years, but, you know, he kind of drew me back into the industry. You know, it's such a great thing to be able to pick up the phone, talk to him on a daily basis. He keeps me grounded, keeps me, you know, keeps my mind clear on decisions and, and you know, really just the, my best friend in the world. So to have him still available, still working, still sounding, you know, things off of is, is a big, big deal for me. That's great. And, and really nice that you're able to continue. We've been able to go on that journey together and continue that journey today. But Eric, let's, let's come to you. I mean, same question to you. Where did you grow up? What did you study and where? Where did your interest in the energy industry originate? And just how did you get into the industry? So a bit of a run through of your journey up until joining Burgers back in 2017. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And mine actually has family connections as well. I was born and raised in Birmingham. And in fact, our office today is just about five miles from the home in which I grew up. I went to school here in Birmingham. I graduated with an accounting degree from Samford University. It's a, a little private Baptist-based college here locally. I left Samford and headed down to the University of Alabama, uh, where we have a great football tradition, and tacked on my master's in accountancy, uh, after which I joined uh, the Birmingham practice of PricewaterhouseCoopers in public accounting on their audit practice. With them, I got my CPA uh, here in Alabama, so I'm still an Alabama CPA in practice for a couple of years before transitioning into the energy, or I'm sorry, to the insurance business in the financial reporting and in the internal audit functions. I finally left Birmingham and spread my wings a bit and headed to Memphis, Tennessee, where I took over as director of financial reporting for an airline and began to really broaden my overall experience. Uh, and it was while I was with Pinnacle that I got a phone call from what was a small EMP at the time, Callum Petroleum, that was headquartered in, of all places, Natchez, Mississippi. And I'd always thought the energy sector was fascinating and the opportunity to step into a company that was repositioning itself and its market cap was just about $30 million. And they were offshore Gulf of Mexico and had just leased some acreage in the Permian Basin and in the Haynesville. 
and had made the strategic decision to reposition on shore. But from a personal perspective, it was an owner-founded company. Fred Callen and his dad and uncles founded it. And so there was a real personal connection to it. And it was a life experience to leave the big city and head down to Natchez and work with that type of a company. And so over my nearly eight years with them, I eventually left Natchez and moved to their Houston office. Uh, and worked with their then uh, Senior Vice President of Finance, who today is their CEO. And so over that period of time, we took that $30 million company and it grew to peak out at $3.5 billion during the, of course, the the boom in the Permian Basin. So it was a tremendous experience to really learn the industry and uh, spread into treasury and investor relations, as well as the accounting and financial reporting functions with them. So when the phone call came from um, Rusty and our Chief Operating Officer, Brad Gray, Brad's known me my whole life to join Diversified right at the beginning of their public journey, having listed in London in February of 2017. In fact, we just had our fourth year anniversary as a listed company on the 1st of February. It was truly a unique opportunity. I too had been looking for a way to come home because my dad, like Rusty's, is my best friend uh, and I missed being away from family. And so to bring nearly a decade of experience in the energy sector back to a city like Birmingham was just a real blessing. So, and then to work with a, another owner founder company where it really is a passion to the team that's running it. It's not just about keeping something afloat. It's about creating something new and, and exciting. So it's been a real joy. Thanks both. Uh, and I think you've touched on a few points there that I'll certainly come back to and, and visit over the course of the episode. But before we get into the nitty gritty, Rusty, maybe you could just give us a quick overview of diversified gas and oil's current portfolio and where you stand today, just to give a little bit of context. Yeah, it's uh, kind of uh, incredible to look at the company today versus four years ago when we first came to the market. You know, very large company now, obviously, we operate in four or five different states in Appalachia, primarily now solely in Appalachia. Our, our operating office is here, headquarters is here in Birmingham, Alabama. But, you know, we operate over 60,000 wells across the uh, the basin. You know, we're a top producer pretty much in every state in which we operate, you know, in the top five or six. And that's with a lot of shale players in the region too, which, you know, as you guys know, a lot of production coming from these shale companies. But, you know, our, our operating model is different. You know, we're producing right now about 105,000 BOE per day, which makes us the third, currently, the third largest producer on the London Stock Exchange behind Shell and BP, which is truly amazing. And, you know, we operate a combination of conventional and unconventional wells, and, and we really focus more on the operation side, where a lot of other companies focus more on the exploration and drilling and, and depletion side. So uh, we our business model definitely is different than most EMP companies, which I believe has made us and given us the ability to be successful over the last four years. It's really interesting. And I think it's remarkable when you say you're the third largest producer on the London Stock Exchange behind Shell and BP. And that growth journey is is remarkable when you look at it. And I guess then the next point to ask is obviously you were promoted onto the main market of the London Stock Exchange last year and have been incredibly successful in raising capital in recent years, growing rapidly since your IPO back in 2017. But before we dig deeper into this and why that is, maybe you could just explain a little bit as to why you chose to go to London and list on the AIM market back in 2017. I mean, at the time, the US was fixated on the shale boom. Private equity was throwing money at the industry. Why not look closer to home? Why did you choose to list over in London? Yeah, well, I think the question itself is really the answer. People were throwing money at the shale companies and allowing them to drill a lot of wells and put a lot of capital in the ground at that time. 
And our model was different. I mean, we were more about producing wells, you know, acquiring and optimizing production, you know, driving synergies and efficiencies throughout the business, generating cash flow, paying dividends, all the things that these shell companies were not doing. And so at that time, when we were looking to raise capital to really take advantage of the opportunity that I knew was going to exist, most of these capital private equity and in the capital markets in the U.S., we're still flowing money at these at these shale guys, allowing them to continue to drill wells. And so our model just wasn't in high demand, even though, you know, for 20 years we've operated it in a cash flow return on equity focused model. As you know, for a while there, the industry just didn't give a lot of credit to that model. And it was more about growth for growth's sake. And obviously that hasn't ended well for a lot of these EMP companies. So I think it was pretty much the fact that, you know, private equity and banking and equity capital markets here in the U.S. just weren't giving credit to the model that we had. And we were really small then. I mean, you know, the company that we took public in 2017 is less than 3% of the company today. So, you know, it was just too small for our equity capital markets here in the U.S. But it, the best thing that ever happened to us was listing in London on AIM and being able to access the capital that we have over the last four years, because I don't think that capital would have been available to us in the U.S., Absolutely. And Eric, if we if we come over to you, maybe you can elaborate on some of those points that Rusty's just spoken about there and talk a little bit more as to why Diversified has become so attractive to investors and how you've managed to be so successful at raising capital over the past four years. I mean, particularly at a time when it when it's been so well documented how investors are fleeing the sector and how capital availability is at historical lows. I mean, there's been an exodus of capital from the industry. So what has been the key to your success? I mean, how have you managed to build investor confidence and continue to raise capital despite the circumstances of the past 12 months? No, it's been a journey for sure. And, you know, Rusty undersells his journey to the IPO a little bit. And, yeah, I love the part of the story where when he was introduced to the attorney who suggested AIM could be a really good platform for him, just given that that at 3,000 barrels a day, it was too small for the U.S. markets to get interested in. And the alternatives were just not of interest. That first run at an IPO in 2015 didn't work out, but Rusty refused to take no for an answer, which coming on to why investors, I think, are so supportive of us today is because of that tenacity. He took those IPO materials and pivoted to a bond exchange and raised $13 million or 10 million pounds on a bond, raising a bond, unsecured bond. And he took that capital and doubled the size of the company. So it was 1500 a day, doubled it to 3000 barrels a day with that money. So when he came back to market and made a second run of the IPO in 2016, that ultimately was completed in February of 17, he had a track record of doing what he promised, which was to grow the company prudently with good capital and deliver a tangible return in the form of a dividend. And so we ultimately paid that inaugural dividend mid-year 2017 at just a couple of cents. Today, it's 16 cents. So the rest of my answer will make sense. Uh, it's it, The results speak for themselves. But, you know, why has it been attractive to investors? You know, I think at the, at the core, we have a solid strategy, one that the industry had for decades before pivoting to a growth at any cost model, built on the fundamental of uh, just running a good business and delivering tangible results to shareholders. And, you know, I, I often remind it's just an authentic strategy because Rusty did found this company 20 years ago with a cash flow centric strategy 
just for his family. And when that family was expanded to institutional and visual investors, the strategy didn't change. It's always been about tangible returns and dividends. You know, so why have we been successful in raising capital and the keys to our success and building investor confidence? It really is just underpinned and we do what we say we're going to do. The results speak for themselves. We've paid over $210 million in dividends over the last four years. So more than four times the IPO. We've also done a nearly $70 million share buyback. So that's $280 million of distributions back to shareholders. And over that same period of time, we've retired about $260 million of debt. So you see a really prudent allocation of capital to reward all our stakeholders, both our investors and our debt holders. And that's underpinned by running a good business. We focus relentlessly on the fundamentals of just good operations, common sense, well management that's underpinned by cost control. And you've seen our unit costs drop as we've not only removed costs from the system as we've become more efficient, but we've grown scale and increased our asset density. So our unit costs are down more than 40% per unit uh, from where we were at the IPO. And it's a model that's underpinned by stewardship. I know you'll come on to ESG a little bit later, but our good ESG is just good business for us, which gives us a real advantage in today's market. We're committed to hedging. We joke that we're boring and we like it that way. And that's because we want to de-risk the business and demonstrate to investors that the dividend that we've committed pay is, is secure. They saw that through the pandemic when we raised our dividend two consecutive times, 7% each for a total of a 14% increase when the integrateds or the majors were cutting their dividend and many others were eliminating it altogether. So we are, you know, we're as close to, and, and our largest shareholder actually made the comment that he can invest in us to achieve a dividend yield that, that he's comfortable with, but still have access to, to some stock beta. You know, our stock's up over double since the IPO. So really healthy return, certainly from a total return share basis. And then we're just focused on margins. And that's a combination of, of course, our top line revenue, hedging to protect that, and then just running a good business underneath it so that we've delivered 50% margins consistently over that period of time. And they've continued to improve as we've, as we've become more efficient as a larger operator. So when you have a track record like that, you deliver what you say, it, it becomes a bit more intuitive while we've been successful garnering not only institutional support with an exceptional share register, but also retail and private well support as well. No, it's it's remarkable listening to some of the figures and the stats that, that you're throwing across there. And it just underpins what a phenomenal couple of years it's been for you as a company. And I, I think your success really underscores the resilience of your business model. I was speaking with Alec Dave from CPPIB when he was on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he was talking about the importance of the sector's ability to withstand market conditions like those we're going through right now. And I think a lot of the practices that you have implemented and put into place lay those foundations to be able to actually deliver that long-term value. But I think from an investor perspective, this resilience, this fundamental business model that you're on about is a sign of a company's ability to weather a storm and come through volatile market conditions. So I guess just to add to that, what are the key factors that have contributed to making diversified gas and oil so resilient in the market conditions of the past year? to being able to deliver the kinds of results that you've just alluded to there in your response? Yeah, I think, you know, a relentless operational focus. You know, I tell our employees all the time when I go out and meet with them that the field employees are the most important people in our company. Because if we don't have production, we don't have a company. We can talk about how we operate as a cash flow model and generating cash flow. But if we don't have, you know, natural gas and NGLs and oil production, we don't have any revenue, which means we have no cash. So we put a relentless focus on operation. We tell, we talk about how every, you know, MCF of, of natural gas counts and how every dollar that we spend matters. 
because we want to be as frugal as possible, but still spend enough money to get as much production as we possibly can. So being a relentless on the operation side and, you know, optimizing production and driving down unit costs is extremely important. And our field employees treat every well like a P&L. And so they know that if I spend this money, will it have a payback? And that is a, an extremely important attribute for these guys to have in the field. And so, you know, that relentless operational focus is key. And then as a company, you know, as I sit here today, and you'll hear me, you know, Eric will attest to this. And so will all the other executive management teams. I talk about how we don't want to get comfortable never get comfortable. We always want to stay uncomfortable in a good way. We want to be always thinking about how we're going to improve the business, how we're going to grow the business. How can we finance the business? How can we lower our financing costs? How can we you know, increase our commodity price and drive away the commodity price volatility out of the business? So we're always staying uncomfortable from the standpoint of not getting complacent. The one thing I've learned, you never make it. Okay, it's always in this business, and especially as a public company, it's always about what you're going to do next year. And so let's do what we know we need to do to be successful over the long haul. And it's all about long-term value to the shareholders at the end of the day. When you go public, it's no longer about just you. It's about shareholders, and it's about multiple holders of the shares. And I think the thing that gives us a lot of credibility with those investors is the fact that, you know, I'm one of the biggest shareholders in the company, you know, singular shareholders outside of the institutional and so they know I'm not running this business for a salary and a bonus. I'm running this business because it is my net worth and it is I'm making decisions as a shareholder first. And so that's always at the top of the list. Absolutely. Thank, thanks, Rusty. And I think you've touched a bit upon the future growth of the company there as well. You obviously both ran us through this incredible growth journey you've been on. But looking to the future, how well does this position you for future growth in a sector increasingly motivated to consolidate? I know you mentioned the majority of your portfolio is built up around the Appalachian Basin. So do there continue to be accretive growth opportunities in that region? Is there still that upside potential in the Appalachian Basin? Or are you prepared to look further afield to other opportunities across the 48 or, or even internationally? What are the next steps? Yeah, I know it's, it's a great question. And, you know, we're highly focused on Appalachia, obviously. We built a very efficient ground game in Appalachia. And so as we add additional assets there, both conventional and unconventional, the synergies that we gain and the margins continue to grow because we already have a fixed cost that we're spreading out amongst more wells and more uh, leasehold. And so you've seen our cost structure declines significantly over the last couple of years on a per unit basis. Uh, and that's just because of the ground game that we have there and the ability to spread out fixed cost over more wells. So Appalachia will always be a big primary component. Now we've kept our balance sheet. You know, the one thing that I've told our guys is, you know, in our, in our investors, we won't risk the balance sheet for the sake of growth. I'm not going to overpay for any future acquisition. It's not about, you know, growing production just to be growing it. If we're going to grow the company, we need to do it in a prudent manner, keeping the balance sheet in check, keeping our leverage in check you know, using equity when it's necessary to do that. And and that's how we've done it. You know, we've funded most of our growth 50-50 debt and equity, and it's kept our leverage profile in a good position. And it gives us the ability to go out and do transactions when others are just don't have access to capital. We do think that there's going to be multiple opportunities outside of Appalachia this year and next. And we want to be in a position that if, you know, those acquisitions or those uh, opportunities present themselves, that we can be competitive. And we know that there's some other areas of the country that look a lot like Appalachia that are kind of forgotten and, you know, nobody's paying attention to. And so we're going to be in a position when assets become available in those areas that we can take advantage of it. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And 
I can't go the whole episode without touching on the energy transition. This year, more than ever, there seems to be a heightened focus around environmental risks associated with the industry and increasing ESG headwinds, even more so now with, with, the, with the Biden administration bringing climate change to the top of its agenda. Gas is widely considered a transition fuel. There's no doubt it will have a hugely important role to play in decarbonisation efforts going forward. So does having a gas-weighted portfolio give you a strategic advantage over your peers? Uh, and, and how well does it position you to navigate this increasing set of risks and to continue to grow in a world that demands a low carbon economy? Well, I, you know, sitting here today, I would tell you that I would much rather be running a, an EMP company that has 92% of their production on the natural gas side than to say I was 92% on the oil side, for sure. Now, I do believe that, you know, the, we have a lot of products in this world that are made u- utilizing petroleum products and, you know, natural gas also. But in the U.S., the power grid is highly dependent upon natural gas. I mean, we're 40 some percent of our power is generated from natural gas, and that's not easily replaceable. And so it's going to be a fuel, especially in the U.S., for a long time, you know, coming in the future years. And, you know, obviously there's other things that are important, you know, manufacturing, a lot of different things from a petrochemical industry that utilizes natural gas. So, you know, I firmly believe that it'll be here for a long time and will definitely outlast me. We believe that we have to get that story out there. We have to keep pushing that story that, you know, natural gas is a big part of the future, even when some of the others, you know, a lot of the more stringent environmentalists think that you can live carbon free. We all know that that's probably not something that's doable anytime in the near future. And it's going to take decades to do that. So we believe that natural gas is a big part of the future. And that's where we're going to invest our money. Yeah, and and I'd compliment that by saying it is something we take really seriously. Earlier in the call, you talked about access to capital, and certainly we have seen an excess of capital for a variety of reasons. One, the the, the sector is just underperformed, underperformed. It's been a poor steward of the capital that it's been entrusted to, to manage. But two, it's a sector that's suffering from you know haven't really gotten ahead of the ESG narrative and communicating as Rusty was articulating its importance to society and how it will collaborate and work hand in glove with other sectors to to work on an energy and a clean transition. But at Diversified, it, we benefit from being UK listed. It tells us to be front foot and on the front end of this. And we were also very much engaged on this as part of moving from our AIM listed status to a premium listed status. Uh, so we look holistically at ESG, all three elements, environmental, social, and governance. We'll start at the back of that and begin with governance. We took a significant amount of time and effort to improve on that during the uplist. You saw that through the appointment of an expanded board with a focus on adding independence as well as adding diversity. So two of our new board members were female with one additional gentleman here in Birmingham who has deep experience in the financial sector. From a social perspective, you know, we are a tremendous contributor into the local economies where we have assets. We pay us, you know, tens of millions of dollars of production taxes that are the lifeblood of uh, school systems and the parks and recreation and law enforcement. And many of these areas do not benefit from the shale revolution. So our, we talk a lot about our conventional base of assets that really are the foundation of the company. And so we produce in regions that need those tax revenues. And so we're a significant contributor there. And then from an employee perspective, Rusty talked about our commitment to our employees. Uh, they are our top asset. 
and allowing us to maximize the producing assets we own. Uh, and we pay the top end of the wages in these communities. We have exceptional benefits and we continue to improve those as we become a bigger and, and better company. And then transitioning to the east side, you know, we've made a real effort to, first of all, we issued our inaugural sustainability report last year that was really set the table and, and laid a foundation from which we could improve. So with our next installment that we're working on and plan to release uh, shortly after our full year results on March 8th, you'll see that we'll begin to talk about identify, measure, and improve. So we're going to move from qualitative to a lot more quantitative. You'll also see a, a significant portion of uh, our ESG disclosures are included in the annual report, as you'd expect to see a premium listed company include. And we're going to align those initiatives with our strategy. We're going to align them with our KPIs, key performance indicators, and we'll eliminate it with management compensation to ensure that ultimately we demonstrate to investors that it is a an area that we take seriously and that we're investing time, effort, and money into addressing. We were, in fact, on investor calls yesterday as part of our trading update, Nando Roadshow, and one of our investors pleaded with us, you know, please make my job easier because I'm getting questions from those who are trusting me with their money to make sure I'm investing it wisely. And so I committed to him. That is our focus. We want to make sure we provide good information to demonstrate that, that, as I said earlier, good ESG is good business for diversified. We want to arrest line loss and get more gas to the sales meter, which generates more taxes and is better for everybody, and to be a good steward of the, the transition. And certainly having only 1% of crude oil, 99% dry gas or NGLs is a great place to start start and uh, build on what we already have done. No, that, that's brilliant. Thanks, Eric. And I guess before we wrap it up, just one question I have for you is going forward, how important is it to have a standardized industry-wide set of ESG standards or benchmarks, which allow companies to be transparent about their environmental performance and to have honest and progressive conversations with their investors about what they're doing to improve ESG performance and therefore meet their investors' specific and increasingly stringent investment criteria. Is this becoming a more important factor in a company's ability to access capital? No, I appreciate you prompted me to, on one element I, I didn't mention, which is that there's a tremendous landscape of those that are trying to help aggregate that data for the benefit of all stakeholders. And, and it, beyond just equity investors, it includes your capital and your debt capital investor as well. So we're very engaged with firms like MSCI, with Sustainalytics. Moody's has recently launched a, an ESG platform. Bloomberg has one. So we have a healthy dialogue with all of those. We've been hard at work on a TCFD disclosure initiative, as well as putting together a, an ESG scorecard that will be a, a summary dashboard, if you will, of where key metrics and key disclosures will live in a very uh, simple and consumable format. We've become increasingly mindful and educated that much of this data is consumed by machines because there's just such a focus on it and the, the sector that evaluates and measures it hasn't fully, fully built out. So you've got limited human interaction and more machines trying to aggregate, which can lead to false negative ratings where you're penalized or, or cited as not having done something or not having disclosed something that in fact you have, but it was overlooked because the way that companies have traditionally made this disclosures are fragmented across multiple venues. There's some in their annual reports, some in their sustainability reports, some in their investor presentations, some on their websites. So it really is important to hone all of that information together put it into a format that is easily understandable and digestible. So we absolutely, as a great question, we're very focused on how we disseminate that information so that the firms like MSCI and Sustainalytics and others can do their jobs more effectively. 
Thanks, Eric. And I'm sure I could ask a million more questions around that, but I'm conscious of time. So uh, we'll wrap it up there. Rusty, Eric, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate you sharing your views on the industry, your approach towards the industry. And to wrap it up, I'd just like to hand it over to you for some closing comments to summarise what we've talked about, share your views on the next steps for the industry, any partnership opportunities you'd be interested in hearing about, and, and just to share a closing message to any of your industry peers listening in. Yeah, I just think that, uh, you know, for us as an industry, we obviously have a lot of, here in the U.S. anyway, we have a lot of challenges ahead of us in terms of the change in the administration and being able to continue to combat what we feel like are egregious orders, executive orders and such that have, you know, are going to have a, a, an impact on the industry. You know, obviously we need to band together. We need to have a, a message that everyone's singing from the same hymnal and that we're getting our message across to the right people because there's no more important year than next year or this year, I'm sorry, on as it relates to the industry here in the U.S. and how we get our message out. You know, for Diversified, you know, we're going to continue to do the things that we've been doing. As Eric said earlier, we're boring and we like it that way, but we're heavily focused on return on equity and we'll continue to be that way. And we firmly believe that the company that we see today will be a lot different next year at this time from a growth perspective. When we get to the calendar next year and we flip to 2022, we'll look a lot different. So truly appreciate the, the time and look forward to talking again sometime in the new term. Brilliant. Thanks, Rusty. Eric, anything you wanted to add there? No, I think it's a great summation. I do think 2021 is going to be an exciting year. You know, I think it'll look a lot more like 2018 than 2019 and 20, which were really focused on building and solidifying the platform that underpins who we are. 2018, if you look back in time, was where we did about a billion dollars of our $2 billion of growth. So it was truly a remarkable year. I think uh, you had talked earlier about the consolidation we're seeing in the industry, the emergence of formerly distressed companies out of bankruptcy that have good assets that are going to need a new home. So I think the opportunity he said is tremendous. And Rusty's right. He encourages us to stay uncomfortable. He's You can't interview an Alabama-based company without a University of Alabama analogy. So he's definitely our Nick Saban who pushes us to be the best. And, uh, and I can tell you that we all hear that message loud and clear, stay very, very focused. And at the end of the day, it is to drive shareholder returns and then to take care of the, the debt capital that we've been trusted to manage. So uh, we'll stay after it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to speak with Rusty or Eric about any of the points they have raised during today's episode, or if you'd be interested in exploring potential partnership opportunities with Diversified Gas and Oil, then please email me at benjamin.west at energycouncil.com. The Energy Council represents the most senior and influential network of energy executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our clients to help them to place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about the ways that we can help your team by connecting with executives like Rusty or Eric, then please email me directly or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network who you think would enjoy them. Thanks, and see you next time.